Now, over the past three Sundays, we have been looking at this Mark's account of the crucifixion of our Lord Jesus Christ on the hill of Golgotha in Jerusalem. And the question we have been asking over the last three Sundays is, why did Jesus die on the cross? In some sense, we've been asking that, actually, since his betrayal in Gethsemane. But that's since the beginning of Mark. Why did Jesus die on the cross? And what does his death on the cross mean for our relationship with God? What does it mean for how we live every day? That's the question we are asking. Now, last Sunday, for those of you who are here, you remember that we saw that Jesus there hanging on that cross. And at 12 p.m., the world was enveloped in supernatural darkness, which lasted for three hours. And then at 3 p.m., Jesus cries out before God as the light now dawns on Golgotha. He cried out aloud. And that's why we left the crucifixion last week. Well, today we are going back to look at those final moments of the death of Jesus. We are, as I said, in Mark chapter 15 and looking at verse 35 to verse 39. Now, as we look at this event and Jesus breathing his last, as we see the centurion make this great confession, and as we see the curtain torn open, we think about these events and we ask ourselves, what do these events mean? Well, I think as I've been thinking about this, uh, I think that the main truth these events are communicating to us is this simple truth, which is Jesus died to bring us in the presence of God forever. Why did Jesus die? Well, Jesus died to bring us into the presence of God forever. Jesus is God the Son, crucified on the cross to bring us home to God forever. And that's just the truth I just want to remind you in this last sermon on the crucifixion. So as I said, it is 3 p.m. on Golgotha there in verse 35. And at that moment, at 3 p.m., Mark tells us, particularly in verse 34, that Jesus is still nailed there to the cross and he cries out aloud, doesn't he, in agony. Eloi, Eloi, lamansavaktani. And of course, Jesus is crying out to God in his mother tongue. But some of the people watching him, as they see him bleed to death, think he's calling the prophet Elijah. Verse 35 says that, doesn't it? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. They are confusing Eloi for Eliah, right? Or as we would say, Elijah. And of course, it's an easy mistake uh, for these um, people to make because they have lived their whole life believing that Elijah will come someday before the Messiah arrived. Now, as it turns out, as we've been going through Mark, Elijah has already come to see Jesus in Mark chapter 9. We saw that at the Mount of Transfiguration. But more to the point, Jesus, after the Mountain of Transfiguration experience, pointed out to his disciples that Elijah has already come in the sense that John the Baptist came in the power of Elijah, as foretold in Malachi. So the crowd have it all wrong. Jesus is not calling out on Elijah, and Elijah is not coming for Jesus. In fact, no one is coming, not even God the Father 
is coming. Now, at this point in the book of John, if we are reading this story from the events from the book of John, we are told that Jesus at this point asks to quench his throat, his thirst, we might say. And here in Mark, someone fills a sponge with sour wine. Let's read verse 36. So Jesus asked for a drink, and in verse 36 we are told, And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. Now, the wine given to Jesus is wine vinegar. Wine that has gone bad. It was actually given to soldiers on the battlefield. And here they have placed it on a stick to Jesus as he's hanging there on the cross. Now with his thirst now quenched, Jesus now summons, and this is why he asked for the drink, he now summons his last energy to cry aloud and die on the cross. Verse 37 reads, doesn't it? And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. You know, these words, uh, here Mark doesn't record them, but John records them. The words that Jesus says. And we read about them in John 19, verse 30. Because John says this, he says, When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now, as Jesus dies on that cross, the the Roman commander in charge of the crucifixion of Jesus suddenly, by the grace of God, understands just who is in front of him. And so when we go back to, to Mark, in Mark chapter 15, verse 39, Mark says this, And when the centurion, in verse 39, who stood facing him, so that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the son of God. The commander has seen a lot of blood spilt on the soil of Golgotha. But no death has caused the earth to darken. No death has led to the ground beneath shaking. He has seen many criminals die on Golgotha, but none of them controlled their final breath. None of them gave up their spirit, we might say. None of them died in triumph with the shout, It is finished. And as he sees all these events, the death of Jesus melts the heart, we might say, it melts the anti-Jewish heart of this battle-hardened warrior of the Italian cohort. It forces him to publicly declare of Jesus. Look at that in verse 39. Truly this man was the son of God. And with that statement in verse 39, we have arrived at the destination that Mark throughout the gospel has been taking us. At the beginning of the book of Mark, Mark told us what it's all about. Remember the first sentence. Mark chapter 1 verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And Mark gave us eight chapters, didn't he? To show us that Jesus is the Christ, God's promised King. 
And the evidence of the eight chapters culminated in Peter's confession in Mark 8, verse 29, which you may remember. And here, that is, Jesus asked them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, You are the Christ. And by the record, we know he continues, says, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And so as we come to the end now of, of Mark 15 there, we have reached the end. Mark now, after 15 chapters, he believes that we know by now that Jesus is the Christ, but more than that, we know that Jesus is God. The evidence has been laid bare for us. Jesus is God the Son. And so to cap it off, he gives us this final confession, not from a Jew, but from a Roman pagan. Verse 39. And when the Roman centurion, who stood facing him, so that in this way he breathed the last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God, or this man is God the Son. At this moment is the climax of the Gospel of Mark, as I said. It answers the key question, doesn't it? Why has Mark written this book? Well, to show us that Jesus is God the Son dying on the cross for us. Because that's the question, isn't it? Why did Jesus die on the cross? Well, the answer is in verse 37 and verse 38. Let's look at verse 37 and 38 again. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And then verse 38 says, And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. When Jesus died on the cross, the curtain of the temple in Jerusalem was torn in two. Now, we might be thinking, what is that about? Well, first of all, to complicate matters, the temple had two curtains. So the first curtain is an outer curtain that separates the court from the sanctuary. The second curtain in the temple hung between the holy place and the holy of holies. The holy of holies where God symbolically dwelt with his people, the children of Israel. Now, Mark doesn't tell us which of the two curtains is torn. In fact, none of the Gospels do. I think that is because he expects us to know, really, when you think of the curtain, you think of the second curtain, as we read in the passage in Hebrews. In practice, though, I don't think it actually matters. It doesn't matter which of the two curtains were torn, because the symbolism is the same. The symbolism of the tearing of the curtain in the temple from top to bottom is telling us that the death of Jesus has now cancelled the old covenant and all his practices that have served as a way of us having access to the presence of God. In the words of the writer of the Hebrews, the old order is now obsolete. It has now been fulfilled. It's found its telos in Jesus. It has passed away because God put it in place as a temporary solution pointing us to the coming of Jesus Christ. You see, when sin entered the world in the Garden of Eden, all humanity became defiled, unclean, unholy, spiritually dead, and under God's judgment. The only way for us to have access to God is for us to pay the penalty for our sin. 
We needed a sacrifice before God. We needed someone perfect to die in our place. But no other human being, you see, no other human being can die for another human being. In the sense that no one human being can die for all human beings. You can die for one, but you can't die for others. A life for a life, right? And indeed, no other human being could die, period, really, willingly. Who would give themselves up for, to die for you, right? And who would be acceptable because all of us are defiled by sin. So the sacrifice of a human being couldn't be acceptable to God because all human beings are defiled by sin. So what did God do? God in the Old Testament instituted a system of animal sacrifices. Every year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest went in the temple of God and sacrificed bulls and gods to pay for the sins of the people. But this solution in the Old Testament was temporary. The Bible says it is impossible for the blood of bulls and gods to take away sin. Because the quality of life is different. What we need is a perfect human being who can voluntarily offer themselves as a sacrifice to God for our every sin. And as I've said, the problem is that a human being can only die for one human being, a life for a life, and only for one life, right? So even a perfect human being won't do, right? For all of us who repent and trust, turn to God as it were. And of course, the additional problem of even a perfect human being, say God decides to create a Adam and offers him up, the problem with that is our sin against God inflicts an eternal penalty against God. Somebody dying for you will only cancel the sins of the past just a little bit. There's eternity to come. Your sin inflicts against God an eternal penalty. God needs an infinite sacrifice to satisfy his infinite dignity. So, we need not only a perfect human being to die as one of us, we need one to die who's also fully God. We need one who's fully God and fully man to die. And that is the genius of God, isn't it? That is the genius of the cross. The grace and genius of God is that God has willingly dressed in our flesh in the person of Jesus. Not merely put on our skin. He has been born as fully man while remaining fully God. And as fully God and fully man, he has approached the cross as Mark shows us here. God has willingly, out of his own grace, died on that cross as a once and for all sacrifice for sin. And he has done it, as it were, to bring us into his presence. You see, without Jesus, the holiness of God is a barrier, an infinite barrier for us. God is too holy for us. We cannot come before God. You cannot approach God. His holiness will consume you in his wrath. But the good news is that God in Jesus died to be the complete, perfect, and sufficient sacrifice for sin. 
He died to remove the barrier between us and God. Jesus is God dressed in human flesh as our new high priest who offers his own blood sacrifice so that we can live in the holy presence of God. You see, God in his glory, you know, his glory is now freely and fully accessible to any person who repents of their sin and surrenders their life to Jesus, our great high priest. Anyone who surrenders to Jesus as Lord and Savior now has access to the throne of God. But it is more than just having access to God. What Mark is teaching us here is that God has come down to be our king. To be our Christ. That's what it means, our king, our Messiah. And he has done this by the death of Jesus. The splitting of the curtain is showing us that the physical temple is now giving way to the spiritual temple. And that spiritual temple is the crucified body of Jesus. What am I saying? What I'm saying is this. On Christmas, we celebrate that God has come to live with us. On Easter Sunday, we celebrate that we are now living with God, listen to me, living with God in the body of Jesus. Jesus is a new temple of God that not only houses God, but houses us. I will destroy this body. I will destroy this temple and raise it up in three days. Through his death, he destroys we might even say the temple, the physical temple, by his own body. And then he raises up a new temple of his body. And through that temple of Jesus, his body, it houses God and it houses us. The, the amazing thing about the gospel is that all who trust in Jesus are home with God now. This is the big truth that Mark is teaching us. Jesus is God dying on the cross to bring us into the very presence of God, into his holy presence, to be with him, to be with God forever. And and it is so important that all of us in this room really understand that there is no... No one who can, can have life with God except through Jesus. That's what John 14 verse 6 tells us, isn't it? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. Jesus is not a, a way pointing to God. Jesus is the way. The death of Jesus is God dying on that cross to be with you. There is no other way to be with God. And I'm sure you have heard people say there are many roads to go to the top of the mountain, right? That's what people say, right? So each of us just make our own way up to God. That's what we are told. Where the Bible disagrees. The Bible says, yes, God is on the top of the mountain. But you and I are not able to climb up to get to him. 
But it, it, it says more than that. It says the good news of the Bible is that God is not asking you to climb up to the mountain. No, God knows that you are incapable of doing that. So what God has done in Jesus is God has come down the mountain. He has stooped for you. He has stooped for me. He has come down to give himself to you in Jesus. God has done what is below for himself. The God who is infinitely greater than heaven itself has lovingly come down to rescue you by dying for you on the cross. God in Jesus loves you and wants to be with you so much that he has come down to suffer humiliation, death, and the very wrath of God the Father on the cross for you. You and I must continue to remember that you cannot be saved by what you do for God, but by what God does for you in Jesus. Salvation is only through faith in the death of Jesus. You see, if we can be saved by what we do, then Jesus died in vain. Then everything we've been looking at for the last four sermons is just a complete waste of time. But Jesus didn't die in vain. Jesus is God giving you a new life with God forever. And it's so important that we get that, actually. Everyone should get that. But even as Christians, that we should be reminded of that truth, as we shall see in a moment. And so, what all of us need to do here is to consider that fact. If we haven't yet turned and surrendered to Jesus, we must recognize that Jesus is the only way to the Father. We must repent of our sin and surrender our whole life to God. Not part of it, but all of it. Let God come and live in you. Now, for... Some of us, we are already relying on Jesus. And if that's the case, then this passage is here to remind you that Jesus has torn the temple curtain. You are now home with God. Right now, at this moment, there is no barrier between you and God. It would really make no difference if you are on earth or in heaven. There's no difference for you. In terms of the presence of God... His protection, His love for you, it makes no difference. Right now, in fact, the Bible says you are sat in the heavenly places with Jesus. You are living in the holy, the joyful and powerful presence of the Almighty God. All your sin, past, present and future, have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus. The death of Jesus has dressed you in the garments of righteousness. God is now your heavenly father in Jesus. And he genuinely loves you. And yes, he is very fond of you. Because you are his precious child. He's more fond of you than you are of your son or your daughter. Because God, by his own blood, has purchased you on that cross. The Lord Jesus is now your king, brother, and friend. He will never leave you nor forsake you. No matter what life brings, Jesus is always with you. And I want you to think for a second who this Jesus is, right? Jesus is the everlasting, the unchanging, the self-existent, the self-sufficient God. 
is the powerful and sovereign God. Omnipresent, omniscient, and omnipotent. He's all powerful, everywhere, and ever known. And this Jesus is always pure to you, he's always true to you, he's always good to you, he's always loving to you, he's always just, and he's always gracious to you. I am tempted to say, What are you to him? What have you got to offer? As one of the hymn writers, What can I offer him? Who caused me to him? Only the waste of sin and shame. And yet, God, by his grace, has called you to this intimate union with him in Jesus. Oh, what a joy it is to have such a God in our lives, to have God, my creator, as my loving, eternal friend. And all because Jesus has torn the curtain open. All because Jesus has died on the cross so that I could live in the presence of God. I just want to encourage you this morning to pause and take this in. Yes, you. I hope you hear it often on a Sunday. But take today, pause, take this in. We have been going quite... I think we're going fast. We've been going quite fast in back, but you might think we've gone very, very slow, right? For the last, we've looked at the cross for the last four Sundays. But we've been looking at the cross, as I said before that. Just pause and take this in. The curtain has been torn open. You are home with God now. Go to Jesus now. Give him all the glory and honor his name just for that. Worship must be our first response to this amazing truth. And as we've been going through Mark, we've been encouraging one another, isn't it? Our first response must always be worship. The second response, beloved, is repentance. Repentance. Why repent? Because you need to repent because you take this truth for granted. The sad truth is that even though you know Jesus died you, died to bring you into his presence, you don't always live like this truth is true. In fact, as I've been preaching this truth, you're probably bored with it already because you've heard it many times. I don't simply say that because of boredom. I say that because you and I, myself included, are sinners. You see, every time you and I sin, we are saying, I have no real access to God. That's what sin is. Sin is the denial of the presence of God in your life. When you're given to sin, you're saying, God does not live with me. And even if he did, I prefer to do things my way. Thank you very much. And who here can say they have no sin? I am a sinner. You are a sinner. We are all sinners. I'm talking about people who have repented and trusted in Jesus. We are still sinners. And so in our lives, even though we know this truth, the very fact that we sin and often willfully sinning, shows that we do not take this truth that God is present with us in Jesus seriously. 
The second proof I would say is that how I know that you doubt the presence of God in your life is that you struggle to talk to God for more than 30 minutes a day. Prayerlessness, beloved, is the tangible proof that we do not take the presence of God in our lives seriously. At the individual level, some of us hardly ever talk to God. I talk about 30 minutes a day, just like that. Some of us don't ever talk to God. We can go a whole day without talking to Him. Beloved, it's not because you are the busiest person in COVID Britain. Your phone usage says otherwise. The reason you do not spend time on your knees before God is because deep down there is this root of unbelief, this root that says you are not convinced of the truths that Jesus lives in you by his spirit. And there I say corporately it's the same reason. Because remember I talked about the beginning, the three levels, as it were, of God's presence. I talk about the fact that God is everywhere, level one, right? God lives in our heart, level two, right? Which is what we're talking about at the moment. And I talk about level three, that God is specially present in Jesus when his people are physically gathered. Do you know why many of us just don't prioritize being in church? It's because we don't believe in that presence of God in the gathered church. This is why churches are happy to shut doors endlessly. This is why churches can prioritize other things than being in the presence of God in a gathered way. It's not weak theology that they don't know. They know that. But the heart of unbelief is so present in us. You know, imagine if the queen moved in to live with you. Imagine that for a minute. I would love that, wouldn't I? Uh, with all this COVID thing going on, the queen is there with all her doctors and uh, she hasn't caught it and she's obviously doing something right. If the queen moved in to, <laughs> to live with us, I would be happy. I mean, I would want to speak to her every day, right? Um, of course, speak to my wife, but <laughs> with the queen around, it's great, isn't it? You would even join in with Prince Charles in talking to plants just to make the queen happy, right? Why is that? Well, because you know that the queen is powerful, isn't it? And to have someone powerful in your life, living with you, wow, I mean, I want that, right? We all do. You want to spend and invest time with them? Because if you didn't, it'd just be madness, right? It'd just be madness. Well, the Lord Jesus created the queen. He is God. Jesus can do for you in a moment than any powerful person can do for you in a millennium. Do you see the point? If you and I truly believed we are home with God, we would spend time alone with God and we would spend time together with God's people on Sundays at the moment. But we do not do these things because even though we know God is home with us, our hearts are full of unbelief. And so that's why when we begin with worship, we must move immediately to repentance. This truth we've heard today should cause us to repent, should cause us to weep that we have such a God who's so wonderful, who has torn the curtain in Jesus, and yet we live in unbelief. It is not a small sin, beloved, 
to believe that God dwells with us and yet not live accordingly. It makes a mockery of the death of Jesus. It is better not to have known Jesus died for you than to know it. And then make little of it. It's a heinous sin. It is a denial of his serving work. A denial of his blood. So let us repent. And as we repent, let us ask God to change our hearts so that we can take this wonderful truth to heart. You know, we need God to help us to grow in believing this truth, not only because it honors God, but also because it enables us to enjoy our life with Him. You see, when you know you are now living in the presence of God, you have joy and peace in every situation because God is with you. Why panic about a job loss? You are living with God. He is taking care of you. Why be anxious about your health? God is holding your hand gently. Psalm 23, isn't it? Why spend endless hours chasing this and that story about whether the world is headed over a cliff? Flash news, the world is ready to be burnt. It is headed over the cliff. But the good news of Jesus is that God is keeping you firm. The curtain has been torn for you. I don't know who's, what they are doing with this COVID business or what the 1% or 50% or whatever it is is up to. But I know what my God is up to. I know that he has torn the curtain open. And I know that as the world heads over that cliff, you hold me secure in his embrace, no matter what. You see, beloved, our comfort in life is not because we have good health. Our comfort in life is not because we have saved up in our pension. Our comfort in life is not because we have a good paying job. Our comfort in life is not because we are good at planning for every crisis. Or we have reliable people around us. Or we attend an okay church. That's not our comfort in life. Beloved, your comfort in life is this passage. It's not what is in your bank account. It's this passage. It is that Jesus on the cross has torn the curtain open for you and you have not only entered, but you have remained in the presence of God, of the everlasting God, of the immortal God, of the three in one. Well, beloved, this is your comfort. This is my comfort. Because the curtain has been torn, your future is already written. God will take care of you, sister. God will take care of you, brother, no matter what. Whatever situation you're facing. Because you are in the presence of God. So my word for you this morning is just trust Him. Because you see, when you believe this truth, it... Not only makes you rejoice in the midst of deep suffering and pain, it also moves you away. It rearranges your priorities. It makes you want to hate sin. It makes you hate sin, period. And then it molds your character, doesn't it? Because you start growing in the fruits of the Spirit. You can dish out kindness to that brother 
who says some mean things to you. Why? Because you live with God now. And God showers you with kindness. You can be patient to your troublesome child. Why? Because you know your Heavenly Father has accepted you and is always patient with you. Oh, I can go on, can I? You know that already, of course. But do you see the point I have been trying to make this morning from this passage? When we genuinely believe that Jesus died to bring us home into the very presence of God, oh, it's a game changer. It transforms our lives. It transforms our life with God. It rearranges our priorities. For me to live is Christ. Why? Because I'm in the presence of Christ. And it changes how we relate to other people. Well, praise be to our Lord Jesus Christ, who has split and torn open the curtain of his body by his death, so that we can live and enjoy the very presence of God forever. Amen.